brought down the biggest bank in the world. In the entire financial crisis, not one banker went to jail, except the whistleblower who exposed the largest tax scandal in the world, that's me. He made his money by illegal oil sales with Saddam Hussein. And they're all looking at me like, who is this guy? I'm like, this is serious. And the Swiss could give a damn. They'd take the money all day long, and they did. When I had my book ready to be published, it was about two months before the election, not one publisher would publish in America. 350 million Americans got screwed. The politicians are in bed with the banks. And as a result of all this, you had to spend three years in jail, but also you were rewarded by the IRS $103 million. $104 million. We stand today. The Business Method the business with method. a shadow. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics for location independence. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring successful entrepreneurs and high-profile people dissecting their business models. We dissect the different methods, tools, and tactics of high-performance online entrepreneurs and high-caliber people in a series format. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs in 100 days that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built location-independent businesses that produce over a million dollars in annual revenue and now we're interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business and influence income results economies and cultures there's a growing number of people building these caliber of businesses like this and we're going to figure out what it takes to make this happen now let's jump in today's show the business method the Swiss banking system is one of the most powerful and secretive banking systems we have in the world. They have been known for years as the go-to place for the wealthy from all countries to store their money, and according to Swiss law, they absolutely cannot share their clients' information with any person, government, or entity around the world. Our guest today, Bradley Birkenfield, is a former top employee of the Union Bank of Switzerland, otherwise known as UBS. He ran the United States division of the company in Geneva for years. While working for UBS, he found some documents that were written to protect the bank from illegal activity that the bank was condoning in the United States. These documents were worded in a way that they could throw their employees under the bus if they needed to direct the blame elsewhere. When Brad approached the company about it, they ignored him. This was a huge red flag for Brad, and after numerous attempts, he eventually resigned from the company. This inspired a series of events which led Brad to approach the Department of Justice in the United States government about the problem and illegal activity the bank had been conducting for years on U.S. soil. To his surprise, the Department of Justice didn't welcome him with open arms. In fact, they even turned the case against him. Eventually, Brad had to turn to the U.S. Senate and IRS to expose what turned into the largest case of tax fraud the U.S. government has ever seen, and Brad became the largest whistleblower the U.S. government and Swiss banking has ever come across. On today's show, Brad tells his story and outlines what he has written in his book, Lucifer's Banker, The Untold Story of How I Destroyed Swiss Banking Secrecy. 
Now, because of Brad's participation with the bank, he actually was sentenced to 30 months in prison by the United States. And what is shocking is that out of the 19,000 names Brad exposed to the U.S. government, not a single one went to jail except him. That's right. The only person who went to jail is the man that exposed billions of dollars of tax fraud against the United States. So far, the U.S. government has collected somewhere near $16 billion in unpaid taxes from Brad's case. Now, there is some good news at the end of this tale. Because the government collected so much from Brad's case, the IRS rewarded him with $104 million. Yes, you heard me right. The U.S. government put the man in jail that blew the whistle on the largest tax fraud scheme in the history of the world with the Swiss banks. They then gave him 30 months in prison and rewarded him with $104 million. And yes, it is all a very, very true story. You guys, it's a tale that goes up and down at high and lows with many twists and turns. It is an amazing book, and we're honored and happy to have the man himself, Brad Birkenfield, here on the show. Let's hop into the interview. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Listeners, welcome to the podcast. And we are incredibly excited because we have a guest that we have been waiting to have on the show for a long time. Author, um, entrepreneur, investor, and the man that exposed the Swiss banks to the United States government and wrote an amazing book on it called Lucifer's Banker. Noah Lace, on the, my co-host, is on the show, and we're talking to Bradley Birkenfield. Brad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Chris. Noah, thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for coming on the show. And Noah, how are you? I'm awesome. In Barcelona, sun is shining. One of the things I love about podcasting is we have Brad in Thailand, now Noah in Barcelona, and I'm in Rio today. And we can have this amazing conversation and connect with each other and, and chat about uh, Brad's life. <laughs> and, and we're going to get into the details of Brad's life because I just want the listeners to understand um, why we're having Brad on the show. Um, Brad wrote a book called Lucifer's Banker, and it's about his experience being a whistleblower, exposing the Swiss bank secrecy to the U.S. government. And we're going to learn why he did it and the importance of why he did it throughout the show. But when I read it, it was like one of those books that I couldn't put down. And there's a couple books that stand out in my mind, like um, The Big Short, Bringing Down the House, um, Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons. Those are other books that I, I, I could not stop reading. And Brad's book was one of them. And uh, then I told Noah, Noah, and I said, Noah, you've got to read this book. It's about the guy that exposed the Swiss banks. And, and Noah, tell them about your experience reading the book. Well, I, to be honest with you, when I started reading the book, I, I canceled two meetings just to finish the book. And there was one meeting, I never forget that. I was with a, with a partner signing a deal at a notary. And I brought my Kindle with me during the notary <laughs> reading the book. And my parents said, what are you doing? I said, man, I just need to finish this. <laughs> Where do I sign? So, yeah. Where do I sign? <laughs> Not a lot of books made, made me like read it uh, so fast. Yeah, absolutely. I, I tell you uh, guys, I get a lot of feedback from folks around the world, uh, believe it or not, that, that um, voice the same uh, opinion that the book has really been riveting. And, and I'm happy for that because it's really exposing something that people, they've heard about it, they've seen it in the movies and so forth, but they really don't know the inner workings of how this whole Swiss private banking business went on for decades, even centuries. So, so, so Brad, we want to understand um, 
the gist of it. So I, I kind of introduced you at the beginning of the show of um, what you were doing. You were working with a, a few different companies with the Swiss banks. Um, but for the listeners to understand, uh, I, I know a lot of people have heard about Swiss banks and have thought, oh, man, I wish I had enough money one day to you know, put my money in Swiss banks. But it's kind of a secret world. Um, do you mind sharing about kind of how the Swiss bank started briefly and why people put their money there? Not a problem. It'd be a pleasure. I think it's important for people to understand in, let's say, the United States, for example, um, we have certain kinds of banks. We have little retail banks where you come in and you put your money and you have a savings account or a checking account or what have you. You may get a car loan or a mortgage for your home and that kind of thing. Then, of course, you have some of the merchant-style banks that were doing sort of import-export kind of business and letters of credit and things like that. And then you went up to the investment banks, which were these big powerhouses that we've heard about, the Citibanks, the Goldman Sachs of the world, who do very sophisticated trades around the world. And those are hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. So those are the three types of banks, just so your audience understands, generally speaking, what the banking world in the U.S. is like. Then, of course, you have a segment from those banks that also service high net worth clients or private clients or wealth management as the terms have been thrown around. Switzerland, in particular, uh, catered to uh, wealthy families way back in the nobility days. Let's go back uh, several hundred years. Because back then, what did you have? You had large estates and large family fortunes, artwork, and certainly there was um, serfs and noble people. So there was a big difference between the haves and the have-nots. Over time, Switzerland became a very politically and economically stable country, I would say, at the turn of the century, the uh, 20th century. And they had some problems uh, early on, but when Hitler came to power, and this is very important, um, he had made a law that if any German moved money out of Germany, they'd be shot. Switzerland then countered with Swiss bank secrecy, which was then implemented into the Constitution, Article, 47, uh, for Article 42 in 1934. Why is that important? It's very important because that literally became part of the society, meaning Swiss bank secrecy was in their Constitution meaning that we, they would never give up the name of a person if any person or government came asking. So it was to really refute Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich, who was punishing people, killing them for moving money out of the country for their war effort, upcoming war effort. And Switzerland just said, no, we're not doing that. So Switzerland was seen as that safe haven to put your money in a secret numbered account where you would never be um, exposed. And so over the years, uh, this was... An, an amazing thing for a lot of people because I'm sure it saved a lot of people's lives on probably both sides of the war. Uh, but it, as it evolved, it seemed like there became, <clears throat> um, you know, some disagreements between the U S banks. And I know that is, is this correct? The U S uh, their Swiss banks won't allow U S citizens to put money in their banks today. Is that right? That is correct. I mean, as a result of my historic whistleblowing, um, yeah, um, what has happened is that um, Swiss banks literally were a um, hundred of them made deals with the U.S. government, meaning uh, they, they signed deals and paid hefty fines. Over $20 billion has been collected as a result of what I've done just in the U.S., not to wow. mention any other countries. Yeah, the, this is this is unbelievable. This is a cataclysmic change in banking, especially Switzerland. 
And what has happened here is not only was UBS targeted because I worked for them, I was a director of, at UBS in Geneva, was that they had offices in Geneva, Lugano, and Zurich. And those three cities catered to um, U.S. clients that maybe spoke Italian in Lugano, French in Geneva, and German in Zurich, but also English as well. So it was a mix across Switzerland to cater and to market to the United States. So I think what you had there was a very, uh, a very sophisticated system of marketing to the U.S., identifying the very wealthy people in the cities in which they lived in, yeah. uh, New York, Miami, L.A., Chicago, Dallas, and so forth. So I think what has happened here was that uh, a lot of people uh, looked at Switzerland as a safe haven. And, and a lot of people understand Switzerland was a safe haven for uh, political problems, economic problems. Um, obviously, people don't want to pay their taxes. That's a standard. But unfortunately, the world needs taxes to uh, support infrastructure. So a lot of people from the U.S. side primarily were putting money there as a nest egg. They were hiding it from the tax man, hiding it from a spouse, or hiding it from a business partner. So if you had enough money to make in America, you probably had a nice chunk if you were banking in Switzerland over there in that country. So you can see that this was a, a quite an interesting dynamic that went on for many, many years. And again, people have to understand that this really started happening after World War II, because that's when global economies took off and you had multi-currencies and uh, a lot of trade. So monies were flowing uh, back and forth. And it was easier to move monies and put them into Switzerland back in, say, the 50s and 60s and 70s, vis-a-vis -vis today, which it's uh, pretty much um, terminated. No, and uh, Brad, is it also uh, like this that nowadays you have many Switzerland, just Switzerland has still have that, that name, but actually there are some other companies that have the same services and secrecy? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, um, the, the other problem, and this is where I think law enforcement has missed the boat on this, is that Switzerland has taken a, an approach of not only just the big banks like UBS and Credit Suisse, but a lot of the foreign banks are there as well, HSBC, Deutsche Bank, uh, and some of these, and uh, some of the French banks, BNP, and so forth. But what they've also done is they've picked new jurisdictions, for instance, in Singapore. They've moved a lot of the monies out of Switzerland and put it in Singapore as a new booking center. So now they don't have to uh, work with foreign governments on the ex automatic exchange of information, which was a law that was passed several years ago, and most countries have signed on to it. Meaning, if, say, Poland asks for all the Polish accounts in Switzerland, they have to give it to Poland. And that's called the automatic exchange of information which is, was unthinkable years ago before my whistleblowing. Now, countries that sign those treaties are entitled to get that information. India, UK, Canada, Peru, you name it. So a lot of these countries have signed on. I don't know how well their enforcement is, but there's been billions and billions of dollars that have left Switzerland, not only in people taking up amnesty programs, meaning coming in and declaring their accounts and paying a fine, but also the banks themselves have been fined. And uh, there's a present case that I actually testified in, uh, in Paris, where the French government is suing UBS and the verdict will come out on February 20th. So this is a very big case. And it's the only country that's taken UBS to a real full-fledged full, full -fledged trial. Um, and the verdict should be around 
five to six billion euros. I mean, this is a massive yeah. amount. Yeah. But if, so, every, if every country do that, do you think that uh, the end of uh, UBS like banks is near? It should be. Well, if they all took upon it upon themselves to protect their taxpayers and their tax base, uh, yeah, I, mean, I think the banks would ultimately have to uh, capitulate and, and close because the fines would be so great and it would be such a hit to them, not only reputation-wise, but financially. And who would want to do business with these banks again? So there's a big political card game being played here, which is the case in the U.S. They really um, mucked up this whole investigation. I gave it to them <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a platinum platter, if you will. And um, unfortunately, there was forces at B, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and some of these folks at the time, really uh, put the kibosh on the investigation, which was really um, quite frightening because in the end, what you've done is you have set a bad precedent, number one, by not punishing them properly. You didn't find them properly, which is obviously um, the taxpayer is not made whole. And then, of course, they just feel as though that they can continue doing this nefarious business. So maybe not in the U.S., but in other countries. So this is a very dangerous game that they've played. And I think exposing them is, is the right thing now. Um, and making sure that people understand what really went on. And I think in my book, I touch upon some of that and the corruption within the U.S. government. Let's go back to your experience. Uh, when exactly did you start working for the Swiss banks, Brad? I left America back in 1995 to go to Switzerland to get my master's uh, in finance. I had an economics degree in undergraduate studies in uh, the States as well as in London. And after trading currencies for a very large bank in Boston for four or five years, I decided to go to Switzerland. So in 1996, I was hired by Credit Suisse in Geneva, and I worked there for a couple of years, and then my boss was recruited to Barclays Bank in Geneva, and I went to work with him for about five years, and then I was headhunted to UBS in Geneva, um, and then I worked there from, let's see, from 2001 to 2006. So I had about 10 years experience working for just private banks in Geneva, Switzerland, and that's their primary business there. The investment banks were not in, in Switzerland. It was all private banks. And to give your audience an idea of the scope and size of what we're talking about, Geneva is about 200,000 residents, give or take. And there was about 130 banks when I worked there, when I resigned in 2006. So you can imagine that's um, per capita. I mean, it's 1,600 people per, per bank, which is unbelievable for any um, city to have that many banks handling just private wealth. It's, it's, a, it's a massive machine that was operating in Switzerland, and it was a cash society. People have to realize cash Bringing cash into a bank was not illegal. That was actually allowed. And uh, what's happened since my whistleblowing back in 2000, and, well, I started the bank in 2005 whistleblowing and resigned in 06. Um, but what had happened was now from 130 banks, there's about 80 banks. 50 banks have either gone bankrupt, merged, or been sold. And it's really quite an incredible story. So about a third of the banks have just absolutely vanished. So that gives you an idea of the business model that doesn't work anymore in Switzerland. You cannot charge these high fees for hiding people's money so that they don't pay their taxes. Now, the problem is if you don't have secrecy, well, why would you go to Switzerland to do banking? 
You could go to Germany, you could go to England, you could go to Hong Kong or wherever. And I think that's really what we've been seeing is the shift, the, the, the paradigm shift here is going from this business model of secrecy to non-secrecy, but now their costs are still high. The employee salaries are there, the rent is still there, compliance is still there. All those things are extremely expensive, but you can't charge the client those high fees anymore. So this is really a big, big problem for Switzerland. Brad, how long were you working with the banks before you started to see these red flags come up for you? And what were those red flags? People, um, it's a great question. People have to realize something. In Switzerland, where I worked and where I resided, what we did was legal. It was a legal business for people to bring in money, deposit in a bank, and never pay tax again. And that was totally legal. The question came into when you left Switzerland to go across into other borders, other countries, and it's called cross-border trade, they would say, well, it's sort of a gray area. And what had happened was this came to a head because a colleague of mine brought a three-page document to my attention that was on the intranet, the internal computer system of UBS. And that three-page document is in my book. You can, people can read it. In essence, the document Someone was authorized to write it. Someone was authorized to put it on our intranet. And we were never told about it. And we were never trained on it. Now, I'm a director of the bank. Now, I, when I found this, well, what was given to me, and I looked at it, I immediately panicked because I thought, this is the end. This is over. What this document essentially said was what we were doing, we couldn't do it anymore. You couldn't go to the U.S. You couldn't bring account statements. You couldn't bring account opening forms. You couldn't bring investment products. You couldn't cold call clients and see them, which is what they were telling us to do for years. They would pay for us to go to luxurious events. We would use our onshore bankers there to help us get clients to bring it offshore and share in the revenue. I mean, this was really, it was a setup by the bank. And they were going to say, if you got caught, well, you didn't read the memo. Well, I read the memo and I, I jumped, jumped ship here and said, wait a minute, guys, I need an answer to this. So I went to legal and compliance and they never answered me. Um, for three straight months, I sent it to legal and compliance in writing. And I have every, every document. I can prove it. Um, they never answered me. So I resigned. And once I resigned, they said, why are you resigning? And I said, well, you, you know exactly why I'm resigning because you're covering this up. So at that point, I brought it to the board of directors of UBS in Zurich, and they called for an investigation, and they covered that up. Oh, wow. Yeah, I really had no choice. I mean, when you go as a director of a bank, go to your legal, the head of your legal department, the head of your compliance department for three straight months, get no answer. No answer. Yeah. And then I have to resign. Now, I was making over a million dollars a year. I was very successful there. And I, I gave that up. And I then brought it to the attention of the board of directors, like you should, because I was still being paid by the bank. It's called gardening leave in Europe. You get paid for six months while you're still, um, you just sort of sit at home and what have you. But so I took it upon myself and I felt it was ethically responsible to bring it to the board of directors, which I did. Certified mail to each member. And, and then they're on the hook. If they don't do something, they're liable. So they called for this bogus investigation and they asked for my help you can imagine that <laughs> she's i gotta tell them how they're breaking the law okay well that's good yeah. <laughs> so and, and and brad there, there was like you were the only one who saw that like no one paid attention on the internal documents so when i read that in the book that, like there was no colleagues that that you spoke to and that and no one woke up it was buried though right brad it was buried in all these uh, documents 
It, yeah, no, and Chris, you, you both make a great point here. No one spoke up and it was buried. Uh, you're correct. But the problem is this, and this is very, very important. Uh, if you understand Switzerland, if you've ever been to Switzerland or any of your audience has been to Switzerland, you'll understand that this is a very closed knit society. It's, it is like a secret club, if you will. And I don't want to make it sound Hollywood, but that's really what it is. You know, people uh, who go to the army are at work at UBS and people who belong to a certain country club work at these banks and so on and so forth. So this is such a tight knit community. Remember in the middle of Europe, they did not accept the Euro. They did not accept the EU. They were a separate sovereign country that said, screw you. We're Switzerland. We're not going to take any <laughs> lip from anyone. I mean, really, that's essentially what it was. It's a country of seven and a half million people. I mean, Manhattan's bigger than all of Switzerland. So you begin to realize, say, what's going on here? And the other important point here is my colleagues were all Swiss. I was American. And sadly, um, in, in, a, in a weird way, they were all either married and had children and families. So that means they had a UBS salary. They had a UBS mortgage. They had a UBS car loan. They had a UBS bank account. I mean, the last thing they're going to do is pee on their parade. So people are going to keep their mouth shut. They live there and their families live there and, and, you know, and so on and so forth. So you could see this was an ingrained sort of uh, indentured servant, if you will. I mean, I use that term quite loosely because these people had a great life. Eight weeks vacation, great salary. You work for the biggest bank in the world. Why would you upset that? Now, I, on the other hand, saw what they were doing and said, guys, it's just a matter of time that we're all going to be unemployable or we're going to be in big trouble or both. So I checkmated the bank and I, I, I was proactive enough to say, hey, this is wrong. You guys, you got to stop this. This is, I'm not getting an answer from my legal and compliance departments, but also the board of directors have covered this up. And, and then I went and saw some of my colleagues for drinks after the investigation. I said, hey, what really went on here? And then I really knew it was a cover-up. And, and it, it, was, it was almost like those gotcha moments. And <laughs> I was just like, I cannot believe what I'm hearing from my colleagues who, who really trusted me. And I was the guy who was always out in front trying to do the right thing. I always helped train people and work with them and so on and so forth. So that's where it all started. And it was that three-page document that brought the bank down. And, uh, and they're still feeling it to this day, all the, these repercussions, fines and articles and clients being sued and suing the bank and God only knows what else. But I think the other problem we have now is you're starting to see that when I went to the U S they attacked me. So the I US said, did. Oh, yeah, the U S government attacked me because they didn't want to hear about it. Yeah. And if you and if you think real hard about this and your audience is quite up to date with how things work in this world, the department of justice the first thing you got to ask yourself is, hey, wait a minute, where have you guys been for the last 20 years? This has been going on. You knew it's been going on. Why didn't you crack that nut? That's the first problem. The second problem is I come in and I have to educate them. I mean, these guys were clueless. I mean, absolutely buffoons. I mean, these guys, <laughs> I'm telling you, you wonder how crimes happen? Just go look at the idiots at the Department of Justice. I mean, it's really, it's, and I say that, I say that with pure uh, uh, conviction that these folks are either part of the problem or part of the solution. And they're certainly not part of the solution. Oh, wow. So yeah, this is the dangerous game and we're seeing it now in Washington. The DOJ is, it's just a total haunted house. 
you've got civil servants who are just trying to extend their careers and then go into a law firm and, and do the revolving door. Yeah. And as I, as I said, again, you didn't uncover this and you knew what was going on. You've got thousands of agents, hundreds of millions of dollars in budgets. Where have you been? Yeah. Then when it gets handed on your front doorstep and I telling them exactly how to go about it, they ignore me. And then they attack <laughs> me because a lot of the powerful people in America and the millionaires and billionaires had accounts at UBS. So just to update the audience a bit, um, Brad went to the U.S. government and was going to share with them 19,000 names of people that were hiding money from the IRS, basically. Uh, but also, I think it's important to note, Brad, too, uh, that you did this before there was any rewards for doing it, before the IRS uh, gave a whistleblowing reward. And also that you, I think UBS still owed you $600,000 or something like that when you resigned. Is that correct? That's, you're absolutely correct, Chris. It's important for your audience to understand is when I started whistleblowing in March of 2005, um, I, I went through the motions all the way up until October of 2005, and I resigned then. And then I continued pursuing this by going back and forth to the United States. The whistleblowing law in America that pays awards for, for um, firsthand information wasn't passed until December 2006. And I didn't even know that law existed. I, I was oblivious. <laughs> but happy it exists now, right? <laughs> well, very happy. And um, ironically, I hired the lawyer, my, my second lawyers, the first ones I fired and I sued them. But the second set of lawyers I hired were um, Steve Cohn and Dean Zerby. And Dean Zerby literally wrote the whistleblowing law in the Senate Finance Committee for nice. Senator Charles Grassley. And and that's really the, the, the linchpin here because, you know, if any judge had a question, say, well, judge, if you've got a question, ask my attorney. He wrote the law. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> so, so you take these 19,000 names to the Department of Justice and tell, tell the audience why they were like, uh, like they, they didn't want to work with you. They were like, oh, no, he's going to expose us. Why is it? <laughs> Well, I, there's several reasons. Oh, again, and I say this candidly, you know, civil servants, I'm not against civil servants, but the ones I saw at the Department of Justice and the tax division were frightfully out of touch and, you know, arrogant and just, you know, who are you coming in here and telling us about something? Well, where the hell have you been? You haven't done <laughs> your job in the last two decades. I'm here telling you this is the largest tax fraud in the world. And they're like poo-pooing me. I'm like, I'm looking at my attorney thinking, am I in a bad dream? And so you've got to understand, it was just, it was this whole amalgamation of, of idiots in there. And I talked about it in my book. But the main thing is this, is that when you come in with hard evidence, not only documents that prove what I'm saying, but my testimony. And if you lie to a government official or a law enforcement, it's, it's a felony. But I wasn't lying. I was telling the truth. Why? I'm the whistleblower. I've got nothing to lie about. So I come in and try and tell them this. Now, just think for a moment, 19,000 clients. Now, I didn't have the name of each and every client, but I had accounting spreadsheets from the bank that I brought with me to prove what I had to say. Um, but think about 19,000 clients, and the minimum account size is a million dollars. And so we had clients anywhere from a million to five million to 20 million to 50 million, 100 million. 
and a lot of uh, Taiwan or Beanie Babies, perfect example, got fined $100 million. $100 million was his fine. So you're, you're beginning to say to yourself, wait a minute, we got 19,000 people here. This is people who, it's not the plumber, it's not the paper boy, it's not the, uh, the guy working the gas station down the street. These are the most rich and powerful people in America, politicians, actors, businessmen, and so on and so forth. And if they've had money in Switzerland, that means they're probably quite wealthy in America. Nobody puts all their money in Switzerland. They put it there as a nest egg, as I said before. So you're dealing with probably the most powerful people in America, predominantly. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that, say, Bill Gates had an account there or someone like this, a very rich guy like that. But that we know it, of. <laughs> that we know of, yes. Good point, Chris, yes. And I think you begin to, and that's the whole mystery behind it. Again, guys, this is one bank out of 130 banks just in Switzerland. Yeah. So if we had 19,000, I know Credit Suisse was about half our size. Um, they had uh, about uh, seven and a half thousand. And then you had all these other banks that had a sprinkling of accounts. I mean, maybe a thousand here, 2,000 there for HSBC, Pictet Bank, Lombard Bank, banks in Israel, banks in Gibraltar, and so on and so forth. But the thing about Switzerland, was just, it was this big machine. So you begin to realize you're making enemies with the most, the most politically connected and rich people in America, period. When did you realize that you're like, oh, like, you know, the Department of Justice wasn't working with you. I think you were having some troubles with the attorneys as well that you were working with at first. When did you realize like, ah, I might get screwed out of this deal? Well, at, at the very first day, I went into DOJ. <laughs> I mean, it was, and I talk about it, it was, it's almost laughable now. I mean, the people are like, it's like, my attorneys are like, hey, this is like once in a lifetime case, you can't imagine it. And one of the attorneys in the room sent an email back to him, like, just what I need, once in a lifetime case. I'm like, <laughs> you don't understand the magnitude of what we're talking about here. And then, this is also very important is not only did I realize it right then and there that I never should have gone to them and my attorneys never should have brought me to the DOJ because all they want to do is prosecute people. I could have gotten confidential informant status at the IRS and never been prosecuted, but that's water under the bridge. But the other thing that's important to understand here is that when you bring this information to them, it's not only move quickly because monies can move and things can be hidden even further if you don't do something about it. But beyond that even is the other tier uh, level of problems. Okay, people evade tax and they hide it from their spouse and they hide it from their business partner. Those are the, the majority of the folks from the U.S. desk. But what about insider trading, bribery, extortion, money laundering, drugs, guns, prostitution, terrorist financing? The list goes on. If you have no transparency and accountability, you don't know what the hell's going on. It's scary. No, is there not a pattern like what happened with Harry, Harry uh, uh, Markopoulos, you know, with, with Bernie Madoff also? Like he, he, he did it in 2000, 2001, 2004, 2005, and they ignored him, the, uh, the SEC. And is, is like a pattern with, with the government in the United States or is it coincidence? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a very great point you make. And Harry is a very close friend of mine. I have dinners with him when I go to Boston. And uh, he's certainly a great friend. He, he admires me. I admire him. And we, we both went out of our way. Now, I got paid. He didn't. But I went to jail. He didn't. <laughs> but we both complained <laughs> to government, government agencies and said, guys, wake up. 
you got a big problem here. I mean, you got like a nuclear bomb in your backyard and you got to defuse it. Now, Harry had such a problem because one, he was dealing with idiots. And again, nobody wants to do the work over there. And that's what I ultimately found out. The problem with government employees and law enforcement and regulatory agencies are relatively useless because one, they're either just trying to keep their job or move on to something bigger and better. So they're really not taking a vested interest in doing the right thing. There's a few, but the majority certainly are useless. And I say that candidly. Secondly, the proof is in the pudding, as we say. Look, look at all these countless uh, problems with banks and nothing happens. They just pay a big fine and they don't admit wrongdoing and nobody goes to jail and nobody loses their job. In the entire financial crisis, this is the, probably the best statistic for your audience. Not one banker went to jail in the entire financial crisis, the worst in our generation, except for one guy, the whistleblower who exposed the largest tax scandal in the world. That's you. That's me. I mean, uh, uh, I mean come did, on. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Just so we know how deep these these political ties go with Swiss banks and the DOJ and politicians, I think it, you exposed... Um, one of the partners of Saddam Hussein or somebody that was selling illegal oil to Saddam Hussein, who was also tied in with a lot of politicians in the Clinton administration. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, Abdul Aziz Abbas. Um, that's the one document I gave to the DOJ because I wasn't allowed to give up names because under Swiss bank secrecy, I would go to jail. And I told them that I said, I need a subpoena. So we're not giving you a subpoena. I said, well, you're not getting the names. And they were furious. So I ultimately gave them one name, which was this gentleman, Abdul Aziz Abbas, which is in my book. And it lists secret numbered accounts and numbers and things that people wouldn't understand. And I said, well, let me walk you through this. This guy lives in a $50 million condo in New York City. They go, how do you know that? I said, I read the file in the vault in Geneva. I know everything about this guy. He has his own phone on my boss's desk with his own, like a bad phone, his own number. He... Um, has a $40 million home outside of Paris. He's got $420 million in these six numbered accounts in Geneva. He's an Iraqi. Why is he on the U.S. desk? Because he's got a $50 million condo on the 46-47 floor of the Olympic Tower in, in Rockefeller Center. And they're all looking at me like, who is this guy? I'm like, are you paying attention? This is serious. And he's made his money, and he made his money by illegal oil sales with Saddam Hussein. He said, well, how do you know that? I said, because I read the file. You got to know how the guy made his money. And the Swiss could give a damn. <clears throat> they didn't. They'd take the money all day long. And they did. So that money was there. And I said to them, I said, you have to do something about this because this is a very serious situation. Absolutely nothing was done. Because when I said, well, he was good friends, uh, with some of the politicians in, in Washington. He put his hand in my face. The, the prosecutor said, we're not interested in non-Americans. I said, what, what do you mean you're not interested? Would you be interested in the guys that were flying the planes on 9-11? They were non-Americans too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, this is the kind of stuff I was dealing with, guys. And it was like, I cannot believe what I'm hearing. So this was so out of their league, so, so far removed from anything that they'd ever seen but they didn't want to give me the credit. First, they screwed up the case by never cracking the nut and un uncovering this largest tax scandal in the world. But, but why? why? I don't get it. Why will they not take action? It's, you're giving them free money. 
Why don't they take action on these things? Doesn't make sense. Well, you know, for us, it doesn't make sense. For them, these are, first of all, they didn't uncover it. Second of all, you have a guy come in and educate them and inform them. So it's so an ego they, thing, you're telling me. Yeah, ego and credit. They can't take the credit. Washington's all about who takes the credit, as we know. So it's like, mm. wait a minute. Here's a guy that comes in and pretty much tells us, you know, the guy that killed John F. Kennedy is, lives down the street on the fourth floor. They don't want to hear it. <laughs> they, they can't yeah. get the credit. So that's what I, I had one of those moments. And I'm thinking to myself, these guys don't want to know the truth. They just can't handle it. They really can't. So I, th I thought for a moment, I'm thinking, they're worse than the people committing the crimes. Yeah. Yeah, they're perpetuating it. Now, whether it's that or really what happened at 9-11 or what really happened at this, um, this site where nuclear waste was disposed of, or who, who knows? All these different you know, um, conspiracy theories. They're not conspiracy theories. This is fact. And I witnessed it, and I have documents to prove it, and wrote a book about it and website and so forth. But the thing that gets me the most is, how many other scenarios have they screwed up? Yes, that's what I was thinking, yes. Right? Not just the DOJ, which we've seen. Again, nobody went to jail in the financial crisis. They paid some fines, big deal. But you put the one guy in jail who was the whistleblower? Yeah, that's sad. <laughs> yeah, just, to, just to teach, don't you think it's just to show if anyone else wants to take also that path, to show, him, to show them, look, we're not going to make it easy for you. Well, Noah, you hit a nail on the head there. That's another scenario that's correct. One, we can't, we didn't uncover it. We can't get the credit for it. This guy's educating us, making us look like fools. So we're going to turn the tables and say, if anyone else does it, you better look out. So that's why what I've been doing, and, and you both have asked me the question, why do you continue this, this uh, crusade or whatever you want to call it? It's because people need to know this story because it affects all of our lives. And I think yes. we begin to realize that when, when I tell the story and they say, oh my gosh, that's what this guy did. And I didn't do it for the money because the law hadn't been passed. I gave up my job. True. I gave up my career. Uh, a million dollars a year. Yeah. And I was paying legal fees mm -hmm. and I was moving around and making sure that this got exposed properly. And then all of a sudden it blew up and it blew up hard because I left the DOJ Department of Justice, and I went to the U.S. Senate, I went to the Securities and Exchange Commission, and I went to the Internal Revenue Service, and I told all of these departments, as many people who had listened, I documented it, and that's what the DOJ was furious about, because they couldn't control the agenda. At this time, you decided to, you're having trouble with the DOJ, um, warnings, you know, you thought you may go to jail, you're having problems with the attorneys. And then, and then you decided to take the, take everything to that, the IRS. That was the second step. Is that right? Uh, a second step was the, um, U S Senate, the Senate. Yes. Okay. And then, and then you worked with the Senate and then, and then the case went to the IRS, correct? And then the SEC as well. I brought them in. So, because there were okay. security um, issues there. And that pissed off the DOJ. <laughs> Well, think about it, you know, it's like asking a girl on a date and then you ask three other girls for a date. And like, <laughs> they thought they were the only one. And I finally said, you know, I don't need to deal with your bullshit. So I'm going to go over and tell some other people who are interested in this. And that was my saving grace because they, they, they were called in to testify in the Congress. The DOJ was. Oh, wow. And when 
oh yeah, when the Senate has hearings, it's raise your right hand and it's not behind the scenes, all these secret meetings with the DOJ. And that's why they exposed. And they hate that more than anything because again, it shows their incompetence, corruption, shows that um, they, they, they don't like whistleblowers hmm. um, and they can't get the credit. Wow. And then were they honest when they were in testifying to the Senate? Nope. They lied, which is a felony. Wow. They've lied not only to the Senate, which is a felony, but who, again, who's going to prosecute the prosecutors? <laughs> True. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a joke. And I, I made many references to this, to this, and I've done bar complaints and so forth. And the, the bar in Washington, D.C. is a joke. They just protect their own. The whole thing, I, I hate to say it, and I know a lot of people around the world don't like Donald Trump, but Donald Trump is right. The whole thing is a fix. The whole system's fixed. Everyone's covering their backside and trying to say, no, no, we're, we're, we're doing things right. How is it that this whole society has ganged up on one guy to say that no, when he's saying, well, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to do it this way, and we're going to do it that way. Now, you may not like the guy. That's fine. But the, the point he's making, I concur with what he said because I witnessed it. Wow. It, is, it is toxic, Washington. They're all out to protect their own and they're out to save their jobs and get all these fat salaries and nobody wants to question them. And when you start questioning them like I did, it shows the incompetence and corruption ingrained in the system, period. Yeah. Harry Markopoulos, another example, Noah, great example. Yes. 10 years. Why didn't he get paid, by the way? I don't, it doesn't make sense. Like it's 50 billion or 60 billion he uncovered. Well, there was nothing left. I mean, it was uh, a lot of the money was fake trades. And I, I think that numbers have been inflated. But, you know, we can argue about the numbers. But it was so massive. And again, what are we talking about? The richest of the rich that were greedy yeah. for these big returns. And it's like, oh, no, Noah, you're not my friend. But Chris, you're a rich guy. You're my friend. You can come and join this club. And people are like, what the hell is this? Yeah. And this was really, this is what it was all about. It was the con game of saying, oh, it's only for the elite. And, oh, you can't do it that way. And you got to do it this way. And then when he uncovered it, it showed so many flaws in the system. The SEC, not, not only that he had told them for the last 10 years and no one did anything, the very fact that once they had it under their nose, then it blew up. And then it showed, uh-oh, all these people, people were committing suicide. People were bankrupt. They thought they had this money. There was greed involved. I mean, the whole thing just was just such a typical U.S. Uh, con scheme. And again, where were the regulators? Where was law enforcement? Sure, you put Bernie Madoff in jail for 180 years. Wow, great job, guys. I'm, I'm <laughs> super work, you know. Geez, maybe, maybe you could figure something out, you know, before it happened, not after the fact. And yeah. that's what people... And he came, like 10 years before, he came to them and, 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 and they didn't do anything. Precisely yeah. correct, Noah. 10 years. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, things can happen in a blink of an eye <laughs> that are so... I feel your frustration, Brad. <laughs> right? And it's, I mean, when I see these guys, I'm looking at them, I'm like, I cannot believe these people are in charge of this government. The DOJ, the SEC, the IRS... Even the U.S. Senate, I'm looking at some of the questions they're asking and the documents they had. Guys, it's, it is, it's frightening. And I, I'm going to come right back to what Donald Trump said. And what people have to understand is he's not a career politician. He was not a military general. He's a businessman. And it's the first time in history we haven't had a politician or a general as president. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. 
And, and as right? a result of all this, Brad, um, you had to spend three years in jail. Uh, but also, the good side of that, you were rewarded by the IRS $103 million once you got out of jail, which is a nice reward. 104 million. 104, exact, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it, you know, Chris, it's quite interesting because it, the money is a, a nice thing, but it was more vindication because people in Europe where I live now, um, people say, wait a minute, how is it that you were the only one to go to jail? And I went to jail actually for two and a half years, 30 months, but okay. still it was in, 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 a, in a camp, uh, no prison cell and no fence, but you know, it was a waste of time and taxpayer dollars again. And then while I was there, I witnessed yes. all the crimes going on within the prison. So there's a whole nother saga. But um, when I got paid the money, people began to say, well, how could the same government put only you in jail and then pay you all this money? Yeah. I said, well, that's the law. The law is there. But yeah, putting me in jail made no sense. It was, again, they didn't uncover it. They didn't get credit. And they were furious. And I made them look like fools. And that's really what it And, and it took a long time to understand it. But that's exactly what it was. And then there were a lot of rich people who probably just said, put in a phone call and said, yeah, who caused all this mess? <laughs> so you, you were not afraid? I'm, I'm sure there was a moment that you think, that you had to swallow a couple of times, no? No, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a fighter. And I knew when I started this whole thing, even when I resigned from the bank, I knew that was the point of no return. Because when you go down that path, you have to, you have to continue in that. Uh, all the way. All the, yeah. Exactly. It's like a... a but you, you had protection, uh, I remember. You had like some security or... Yes, I did. At, initially, I did, just not knowing what to expect and so forth. But... You know, quite frankly, now my story is bigger than me. I mean, it's it's taken on such a yeah. where governments, I mean, sovereign nations are going after this bank. Um, as I said, the French trial, I testified for 10 hours in that trial. The DOJ wouldn't even allow wow. me to leave the country. I had to have the French magistrates issue me a subpoena through the French embassy in Washington. So I circumvented the whole <laughs> justice system and made them uh, send, uh, allow me to travel. It was, it was crazy. And it, it begins to show the, the ingrained, as I say, incompetence. And I, and I say that candidly. They are incompetent. These people really couldn't solve a crime. Now, they have all these weapons at their disposal where they can indict you and this and that and put on 100 charges against you. And you've got to pay to defend yourself. But you notice that they never take cases going after the big banks. They always go after the low-hanging fruit. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that, that fact that the underdog fought, you know, the, the, the big uh, David and Goliath, that made a lot of people wanted to finish that book as soon as possible. Yes. At least I had that, the, the underdog feeling. And, and then we were for you, you know, like we were behind you. We wanted you to win. You know, Noah, that's a very good point as well. And when I worked with my ghostwriter on it, and he said, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that obviously don't like you, which is fine. Yeah, 19,000 to start and uh, so forth. But... The majority of people around the world, and it's in different languages, my book, and I'm doing more, uh, everyone has said to me, my gosh, you had such courage to go ahead and do this. Weren't you afraid? And you were the David and Goliath, as you rightly mentioned. And I think yeah. the thing in life is, I think everybody loves an underdog. And definitely, especially the big bad banks who have been ripping off clients for decades. And, you know, nobody likes them and they think that they're above the law and all of this. So, that's another reason why I continue this, um, this mission. I, I, um, I, yeah. I developed the website, as I said. I lecture frequently, and I, and I like to go on uh, shows like your podcast here to educate and inform the people. So they say, wow, 
this is quite a fascinating story. Why didn't I hear about it? Do you know? Yeah, awesome. In America, when I had my book ready to be published, it was about two months before the election. Not one publisher would publish my book in America. Wow. Wow. Because they're worried. I went to 10 different. They're worried. They were worried about the um, information I put in there about Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Oh wow! Yep, and the CIA. Yep. And and was what was the company that ended up publishing it? It was called Greenleaf out of Austin, Texas. It, I self-published. Okay. I paid to have it published, and I was so furious. I just paid the money to do it myself because I wanted it out before the presidential election. And again, ironically if you look at what's happened, when you see what Hillary Clinton was doing with all of her shenanigans, um, she wasn't a good candidate. That's, that's just the bottom line. I mean, yeah. live with it, that thing. And you know, whether you're political or not, and I'm not a big political guy, but I knew what she did with the UBS case. She covered it up and I described it in my book and she got involved in an international criminal investigation and she didn't find the bank properly. She didn't even get all the account names. She only got 4,700 names. That's a 75% failure rate. Wow. Why? Five people rob a bank mm-hmm. today. Don't you get all five people? Or you let three go and you only get two of them. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, that's what she did. But it was 19000 And then she didn't find the bank properly because her and her husband were getting paid speaking fees by UBS. Their foundation was getting oh, money from UBS. I, I mean, guys, this is the worst of the worst that you've ever seen. I mean, it's so corrupt. And, 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 and Donald Trump was correct. It was crooked Hillary. And she's crooked. And I, I stand by it. I'll, I'll debate Hillary Clinton anywhere, anytime, any city. And I can tell you, they don't want to hear this. And what's interesting is, two weeks before the election, they asked me to come and lecture down at the, um, the foundation, at the library for the, for the foundation. And I said, I don't think it would be prudent to do that. The Clinton I Foundation. Be, yeah, exactly. Wow. Call me great. <laughs> Yeah. And I said, I don't think that would be prudent right now. I think we should let the election pass, let the dust settle, and a week or two later, I'll, I'll give you a call. We'll see where we go from there. Well, obviously, she lost. I called, and then they hung up on me, and they didn't want me to come down. <laughs> Is there anywhere, Brad, that they that we could see a list of the 19,000 names? Is it public record, or do the, does the government keep those and just hide it? Or oh, not? no, it's not public record, which is really quite interesting, um, which is to say that there'll be some names that are going to be coming out probably in the next few months about uh, certain clients that had money and um, they denied that they had money, but they came in under the amnesty programs. And as I said, the bank, mm. uh, the bank clients, let's see, they collected around $12 billion from um, UBS clients, the U S government did 12 billion. That's just from the clients. Then they got the fine from the bank, which was a joke, $780 million. It was really a joke. It should have been more like $5 billion. Uh, but again, Hillary was involved in that. And to settle the case, if you go onto my website, luciferbanker.com, under DOJ Corruption, you'll see a CIA secret cable. This is an actual cable that WikiLeaks um, put out there. And it talks about Hillary Clinton involved with the finance minister of Switzerland and taking two Chinese Ugar Guantanamo detainees and settling them in Switzerland to settle this case. Wow. And it says it there, a political solution to the UBS case. It's there in writing. You can go see it on my website. What's the link again? Luciferbanker.com. Go under DOJ Corruption and CIA Secret Cable. And that's the WikiLeaks cable 
that was printed by Afton Poston, a Norwegian newspaper. It's a one-page secret CIA cable that talks about how this has to be a political solution to fix the UBS case. Wow. I mean, this is absolutely outrageous. 350 million Americans got screwed by Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Hands down. Yeah, that's treasonous. In my opinion, that's treason. You want to talk treason? That's treason. And I, I further followed up on this WikiLeaks cable. What did I do? I met with Julian Assange twice at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And what he told me was unbelievable about what Hillary Clinton was up to. Putting her server at home, I mean, to avoid FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act. He said, oh, absolutely. That's why she did it. Because if she was a government employee, they'd have FOIA could get all the information. Now her things were at home. They couldn't get anything. It's incredible. I'm telling you, it's the corruption in Washington is beyond belief. And, and, and again, I'm just giving you a slice of the pie. Now, people may hate me, and that's fine. There's a lot of people that hate me. There's a lot of people that like me. I can't change that. <laughs> but what I can well, If you're not hated, that, uh, you're good, uh, usually good at a good job. Well, that's it. And what I, I do tell people is when I put my mind, set my mind to something, I do it and I do it right. I brought down the biggest bank in the world, and yeah. I exposed the largest government in the world, the DOJ. Yeah. And, and all these people were against me. UBS was against me. The Swiss banks were against me. The Swiss government was against me. 19,000 rich Americans were against me. The DOJ was against me. The State Department was against me. The White House was against me. The Treasury Department was against me. <laughs> How do you win that fight? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. And not many people have ever, ever faced that kind of confrontation. But that's why I continue to tell my story today. And everyone's running away from me. I mean, they don't want to hear it. I sent my book by FedEx to every single member of Congress. I got three thank you letters back. Three. That, can you share who they were from? Um, I, um, Ron Johnson was one yeah. Republican, and were two other Republicans. Not one Democrat. <laughs> Not one. <laughs> nope. Um, yeah, it's interesting how how I mean these systems they're set up to to design order in our world, right? And usually they have really good intentions, but they get so big and there's so many political ties and so many different issues and things that are happening that it's, that, that it's hard to manage. And, and you see it in any type of system that grows to a certain level uh, that it's like, okay, the system has outgrown itself. Now there's some serious problems and corruptions within the system. It's not just the U.S. government. Like I'm down here in Brazil. This government is an, a whole nother animal. And of course, you know, you're in Thailand and there's challenging things there and, and all over the world, yep. you know, even it's been Noah's in Spain and, you know, you know, part of the country's trying to secede and, um, and, and it, they just, you know, it happens, but it's kind of, it's, it's interesting to see because I think all of this, and I think that's what played out with your story, Brad, is that, um, especially with the way that we have media now and, and the way that we're connected is that um, it helps things become better. And it is slowly over time, things get exposed like this. And then we create a new sort of system humans do uh, that make it better until that system, you know, gets out of control and implodes on itself or explodes. Um, but, but, can you share some of the ways that things have gotten better or has anything gotten better within either the banking systems or uh, the U.S. government or just within yourself since all of this has, has come about? Well, there's been a lot of change. And if you go under, again, under author, you'll see Brad's impact. And the impact that I have um, 
achieved as a single whistleblower, unprecedented in what I did. It had never happened before. This was unheard of. First thing is this. One, Geneva, Lugano, Zurich offices were closed down handling U.S. clients. That's full stop. $780 million fine. Three Senate hearings, four Senate reports, four government accountability office reports. A new treaty between the U.S. and Switzerland was signed. A hundred Swiss banks signed agreements with the Department of Justice and paid fines. Three amnesty programs in which uh, $12 billion was collected. France is now suing uh, UBS and probably going to get $6 billion. Germany, in just one region, got 400 million euro. Country after country is repatriating these pro uh, monies back to their treasury departments and their local banks rather than Swiss banks. I mean, this is unheard of. This was, I mean, such a dynamic change that people don't realize that this effect has caused so many things to change. And the money that came back just to the U.S., think of it this way, $10 billion comes back from Swiss banks to U.S. banks. That's the first thing. But that money then gets invested and it gets taxed through perpetuity forever. That money generates even more money. So, I mean, the, I mean, I should be getting, you know, the Congressional Medal of Honor. I mean, my God, I, what have I done for America, let alone the rest of the world, is huge. And we always complain, as I said before, about all the other nefarious acts. What about drug dealing? What about terrorist financing? What about insider trading? What about bribery, extortion, and so on and so forth? If you don't have the transparency and accountability, those acts are going to continue. And that's what I pretty much put an end to by destroying Swiss bank secrecy. It's affected all these other groups who said, oh, shit, we can't be doing this business in Switzerland. We're not safe anymore. Where are you going to go? So do you think these, um, I think in, I mentioned earlier the book and the movie, The Big Short, which I think has a, you know, a similar um, theme to it as your story. Uh, at the end of the big short, you know, they said that, you know, are these banks really just too big to fail? Um, what what happened to the the U.S. banks is that they um, took what they were doing. And as Noah put it, actually, Noah had this question. Uh, they just put a new dress on it and reworded it and gave it a new name and kept doing the same thing. Um, do you think that the Swiss banks are, are doing the same thing or, you know, are they too big to fail? Well, um, here's the problem. I mean, it's lost sight of its real mission. They don't understand it. That's the first thing. That's very important. Regulatory bodies should be coming down hard, setting a real precedent, setting real jail times, real fines. So people realize because it was too painful. That's the first thing. The second thing is even Eric Holder, the attorney general. It's such a ridiculous guy this guy is. He stated, well, we can't really harm these banks or really upset the financial system. They're the cause of the financial system crashing. It's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard come out of his mouth that, well, we're not going to punish them for doing all these bad things because that'll upset the financial system. Well, we're in this mess because these guys were greedy and cheated and so forth. So now what's happened as I said, they've tried to move the monies to different jurisdictions and relabel it something else. Some monies went to Monaco, some money went to Singapore, and so on and so forth. I have a lot of friends in the banking system. They've been telling me exactly what's going on. Now, the problem now is there's nowhere else to hide, and the Swiss banks are in deep trouble, and that's why a lot of them have gone bankrupt, uh, merged, and so on and so forth. 
the costs are too high. Secrecy doesn't exist anymore. And uh, people aren't going to pay for it. So to answer the question that way, yes, it's, it, they've tried to re-massage uh, this and rename it something else, but it's becoming more and more difficult. But what they should have done is really gone in there and opened up the books and said, we're not tolerating this anymore. But my problem with this is, is that if you look at some very clear facts, in one in particular, when President Obama was in charge, he had sent $1.4 billion in cash to Tehran from Geneva on a private jet. Now, anybody with a third grade education can understand, why would you send a private jet from Geneva, Switzerland to Tehran with cash? <laughs> $1.4 in cash. Yeah. That's, that's, that's not a good thing to do. And we've heard nothing about it. And again, was does Obama have a bank account in Geneva? Why didn't it come from the Fed in New York? Yeah. Or Washington? Why from Geneva? Yeah. Oh, I see. So you're in bed with the Swiss. Yeah. And that's how you got this UBS case settled. Oh, I see. See, this is the problem. The politicians are in bed with the banks. Yeah. And I think this is the, the biggest thing. And that, that's a fact. You can go Google it. Go find out. Barack Obama ordered it. It went on a private jet. I have a video of the tail fin of the plane taking off from Geneva Airport going to Tehran. I mean, again, are you kidding me? So first you have the problem with UBS. You don't even do a proper investigation. You don't get all the names. You don't find them properly. Nobody goes to jail except the whistleblower. That's brilliant. That's a great move. <laughs> then you have this scenario with $1.4 billion in cash on a private jet from Geneva to Tehran. Wow. So it, it shows you that since World War II, the U.S. government is in bed with the Swiss. And I am convinced that these two governments play ball together. Is, is transparency the only way to, I mean, like, I think any government is, is going to have to have some connection with finance and banking in some way. I don't think you could ever completely separate the two. But, I mean, what's the solution? Complete transparency? Or, or what do you think? Um, well, the, the first thing I would do is I would set up a group of um, a department that is actually um, head by whistleblowers like um, Harry Markopoulos and so forth and someone like myself and others who look at these institutions and say, no, 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 you're, you know you're doing wrong things with derivatives or mortgages or this or that. And then come in and say, no problem. We're going to take uh, the top five people who are part of it. You're going to jail and we're going to find you a billion dollars. And if you don't like it, tough shit. <laughs> now that would catch people and wake them up. Why? Because I'm not looking to get a job for some big law firm that's going to be defending these banks, or I'm not looking to go for some lobbyist firm in DC that's going to play the other side of the card. None of that crap. No, we're going to start laying down the law and it's not going to be pretty. And you're going to be paying a big price because what's the sense of having laws if you don't enforce them? Yeah. How is it that UBS can pay $400 million? And if you go on my website again under UBS scandals, and I pick the top 10 UBS fines, just the top 10, it's $6.5 billion. Now that's in Germany, France, England, US. But how do you, how do you write a check for $400 million and say, we didn't do anything wrong? I mean, yeah, I write a check every day for $5 million. I say, no, I didn't do anything wrong, but here's $5 million. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> just take that. <laughs> The whole, the whole concept of it is so ludicrous. And that's the problem with the system. They're playing this, this game and people are like, this is a joke. You're all in bed together. Justice isn't being served. You're not doing your job. The taxpayers are getting screwed. 
and the banks continue to do this because they know they can get away with it. It'd be like you, Chris, and Noah, and myself. We all go to Paris. We rob a bank. We steal 10 million euro. We get caught. And we say, we're sorry. We're going to give you back 7 million. And each one of us is going to keep one each. And we're not going to go to jail. <laughs> that's I'll how it happens. That. <laughs> <laughs> right? But that's what these big banks are doing. And as you, you rightly said, when it's so big, when the numbers are so massive, people say, oh, gosh, we can't touch that. Well, why can't we? Right. Right. Now, all the more reason why we should be doing it. And, and quite frankly, I agree with you. I think the banks should be uh, cut down to size. I think they should be broken up a bit because they're just too massive. And if you're going to tell us that we can't, we can't jail them or find them or whatever, then they know they have a license to break the law. Yeah, and do whatever they want. Yeah. Do whatever you want. Yeah, sure. Because everyone is eating. Precisely. The lawyers are eating. The accountants are eating. The bankers are eating, the politicians are eating, and he says, wait a minute, these guys are all the fat cats getting away with it, and the taxpayers are footing the bill. Yeah. So, Brad, like for, for, the, for the listeners, for the audience, which uh, is in a different bracket, let's say, than you, you are playing, how can they protect, like, how can they use this information that you're sharing with us, like amazing information, amazing uh, insights? And, and, and protect themselves or, or use it to their own benefit? What's your opinion? Because you, you, you travel around, you see a lot of the world. What, what can you tell us about that? You know, that's a great question, Noah. It's very difficult for people who do not have political influence or financial backing to make a difference. That's the sad truth. And I, I said it candidly. Again, again, I want people to understand that I'm not trying to sugarcoat anything. I just come out and say it because either I've witnessed it or I have documents to prove it or both. And I think with this particular question you ask, the only thing I could see is uh, people getting together and writing to their congressperson. Uh, I know it sounds sort of like a standard um, line, but I don't know what else these folks can do other than even if they close an account at, say, J.P. Morgan or at Citibank, that's not going to affect them. Uh, it's not going to affect the client. It's not going to affect the bank because they have so many clients. So the point is, is that you can only go to the people who can change the laws, unfortunately. Most of them are useless. And I think that's what I've been dying to do is get up in front of Congress to testify so I can expose all of this nonsense. But see, that's the problem. People don't want to hear the truth. And it's, it, this is the sad reality of what we're dealing with here. So I don't think I have a, a real solution for your audience in this regard because it's so ingrained and you can't get over that uh, that hurdle that hurdle is too high for any of the folks but like if 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 the audience uh, would like to uh, put their 50 cents or or take the effort to help you in your cause in your purpose uh, can they do anything uh, can they vote for something well they i, I mean i do i have i do have my website which is luciferspanker.com and i also i'm on linkedin people can you know send me requests on LinkedIn. I, I use LinkedIn quite a lot because I travel worldly. Um, and I lecture quite a bit. And I like to engage with people and try and get things going. And I'm working on a situation now where I'm going to be probably open in an office in Europe to help whistleblowers because the problem in Europe, as an example, is they have no protections and they have no uh, award payments. So who would risk their, their family, their career, their finances, their reputation, and so forth, to be a whistleblower. Generally, you won't do it, especially if in Europe they're going to attack you and prosecute you like they did me in America. But so 
the laws in America actually can help a lot of Europeans if they witness U.S. laws being broken, whether it's U.S. currency, U.S. stocks, or any company that's listed on the U.S. stock exchange and so forth. So that's what we're looking to do is to help people bring those cases, one, for representation, and so they have a voice, and then two, bring them if they have a big case to be able to file it so they can get rewarded off of the information they provide. Now, um, the problem is in Europe, they've been attacking whistleblowers left and right. Uh, Antoine de la Tour in Luxembourg, who was the LuxLeaks whistleblower. Um, there was a recent gentleman in Switzerland yes. who uh, sold some data. And again, I'm not condoning stealing data and selling it. That's really not a whistleblower. But he felt obligated to do it because he saw it was illegal. And again, he did that. And they, they had a, a court case in Switzerland uh, last week. And said he was guilty, but he's in Germany, so they can't extradite him. Uh, but there's another case, and um, there's various other cases around Europe. They're attacking the whistleblowers because it's, um, it's part of big business. They don't want the truth out. They don't want to be exposed for their illegal conduct. Okay, thank you. Like, more out of curiosity, like, you, you spent a couple of months uh, in, in jail. Did you meet very interesting people there, or...? I did, actually. You know, it was quite interesting. I found it fascinating um, because when you see from the inside out, you have a different perspective on life. And unfortunately, um, the prison system in America is a business. It's not about justice. It has nothing to do with it. Um, you're talking private prisons. You're talking about the commissaries owned by the Bush family where you have to buy all your food and all this stuff. They have these, uh, these companies that control all of that. When, when the guards buy lawnmowers and, um, and snowblowers, they disappear and go to their homes. But who's going to report it? You're in prison. <laughs> I mean, this is, the kind of, yeah. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff we saw. But some of the people I met in there were interesting. I met some folks that were in white-collar crime predominantly because I was in something called a camp. Um, no prison cell or no fence. It was like a college campus. We were playing bocce and tennis and softball <laughs> and all of this. But... Um, I went out of my way to help a lot of these folks. I tried to uh, mentor them, motivate them, help them with their resume. Um, I filed a lot of appeals for these guys who were just totally screwed. I mean, either had bad legal representation or a crooked uh, prosecutor or a, a, a biased judge. I mean, the, the whole thing is crooked. The whole system is a mess. And I saw it. And I'm like, I cannot believe what I'm seeing. And, you know, you would talk to people about their cases. So th then you, you really felt for them, you know. The, the fact that a guy's selling crack, cocaine, okay, it's illegal. We get it. But 20-year prison sentence? Yeah, a bit, a bit exaggerated. Yeah. Exactly. So it doesn't, it doesn't really, it's not an equitable system. And generally speaking, it's the lower-income people, the blacks and uh, Hispanics, that got uh, the short end of the stick because the system is so uh, twisted against them. And I, I saw it. I witnessed it. People can't say I'm lying because I know the numbers. I saw it for myself. So... And I read people's cases, and I, I couldn't believe some of the indictments that they got. So, you know, this is the way the world works. Unfortunately, again, it's the have and the have-nots. And I know it sounds like um, a repetitive statement, but it's true. And that's really what happens in this world. Uh, God only knows what happens in Europe, but generally their justice system's more equitable and fair. And in the States, it's more about let's put more people in prison and so I can get a chip on my shoulder and I can go to that big law firm and become a high-paid lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and like for the audience, like you, you, you travel all around the world from Asia to Europe, to United States. Uh, like 
what kind are you in, in invested in specific countries or, or asset classes, especially you know with the crisis coming around the corner? Uh, do you do you advise us uh, to go any specific way or, or asset class? Like big banks and like big governments, I don't trust the stock market. It's fixed. I totally. You're the la, You the three of us and your audience are the last people to know if something's going to happen on the good side. On the bad side, well, we'll be the ones taking the brunt on that too. So the big banks and the big hedge funds are way out in front on us. We can't compete. Just like we're trying to compete on some of these uh, scandals to expose them, we can't compete unless you have a voice. So what I try to tell people is be very uh, prudent with your investments. I generally do just real estate um, and I do private equity and I do some um, sports memorabilia and artwork because those things I can I understand and I know and I can control it if you start to buy and I'm not saying certain hedge funds aren't good at Vanguard or or some of these big hedge funds they're, they're quite good but I just don't trust the stock market I, I think it's so volatile off of so many people moving it I try to tell people Find something that you know. Start a small business. Buy a little apartment and rent it and get some income from that. That's something you know. You're going to invest in some stocks you have no idea how they're valued or what their business model is. Why would you do that? Just because your advisor tells you this? No. Don't do that. And, you know, the banks don't want to hear this because that's how they make their money. But I'm sorry. People invest in a lot of things they don't understand. You know, if you go to a restaurant, they give you, um, they tell you you can order something that's uh, made in Korea and you don't know what it is. Would you order it? Of course you would. You don't know what it is. So why would you buy a stock that you don't know what it is? We hear you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this. My pleasure. Brad, this series of podcasts we're doing, it's a, we're interviewing 100 major influencers. So people that have gained influence in some way and using it to impact the world uh, for good. Is there, like, is there a final statement about your mission and purpose that you would like the listeners to hear before we wrap everything up? Yeah, I, I, I think people have to understand that you know, when you have a passion for something and you, you have a good perspective um, on what you believe is right, um, you have to pursue that, and there'll be a lot of costs associated with that, family, friends, what have you, financial, econ um, emotional, and so forth. So I would say that no matter what it is, if there's something there that you really believe in, which is going to affect not just you, but the next generation, then stick to it and make sure you push it forward and stay on it. That's what I'm doing. I'm a single guy. I could just go retire, but I'm out there talking to folks like yourselves. I'm out lecturing, writing books, websites, and all this, because my story is so incredibly important for people to understand. If I didn't tell the story, they wouldn't know all these facts. And that's so important. So that's why I go out and tell the story with such passion and such energy, is because I really believe in it, that we really must have this so it doesn't happen again, Chris and Noah. This is critical. And if we have children or your audience has children, what do we tell them? We, do we tell them to cheat and steal at school and hit the kid in the face on the, on the, on the football field? No. We tell them to do work well, work hard, and then graduate and get a job. Now, if, if we're telling kids that, why don't we do it? So we're a bad example. Yes. Right? You know, the bankers yes. and the lawyers and the politicians, you know, they say all these stories, but they don't really follow through. So if we have the next generation to look at, whether it's a niece or a son or daughter or whatever, we have to give them the right story. Otherwise, they're going to grow up with these bad influences. And that's not what we want. 
I think no. that's a great way to wrap up the show. Brad, I know you mentioned throughout the podcast quite a few places people could follow you. Luciferbanker.com is the best place. Anywhere else? Yeah, luciferbanker.com is the website. It's full of information there. Um, LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn. People can send me a LinkedIn request. I generally answer most of them and uh, get back to people. I always keep in touch that way. Um, I travel a lot, so it's easier to do it that way. Um, I do lecture under my website, under events. You can see in certain cities, I go around the world and lecture generally for free to help people out and understand. So um, happy to come back on your program, gentlemen. And uh, it's been a real delight to uh, spend the time with you. I think you'll definitely be welcome back. And I've got to ask, any chance we'll get a movie out of this story? Because I really hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're working on a TV series. That's my um, the producers and directors I've been dealing with have said that there's too much content to have a two hour movie. It just you wouldn't be able to get it in there and make it work. So they said a TV series is really the best way to go, and that's what we're working on. And we should have an answer on that probably in the next two months. Hopefully, uh, fingers crossed. I'll be rooting for you, man. Uh, I want to give you a huge thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. Noah and I were incredibly excited when we heard that you were going to come on, and uh, we really appreciate it. So thank you so much, Brad, for joining us, and uh, we hope to have you, have you on. Well, let's all get And to read your second book. And to read yes, your absolutely. <laughs> second book of the TV series. Looking forward. And, um, yeah, let's see if I'll get together in person. It'd be great to all meet in person and uh, share some stories and uh, keep the story alive. Absolutely. Thanks again for coming on the show, Brad. Listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Ciao, guys. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.